Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the election and the courts. So, Richard, a lot of agita out there about the upcoming election being held amongst unique circumstances with the COVID outbreak, and a lot of debate about how long the count for absentee votes should be held open, about the propriety of doing so much of the vote through the mail, about early voting. So you have fears on the left largely stemming around whether or not all the votes are going to get counted, fears on the right about possibilities for malfeasance or voter fraud. So we're going to talk about how the courts intersect with this. But before we even get to that, let me just start on the big question. How confident are you that this election is going to go off without a hitch? And what do you think will be the most important variables in determining that? Well, the only way this election will go off without a hitch is if it's not close. And so to the extent that you get early reports on states and it shows a decisive victory for Biden or a a respectable victory for Trump, uh, I think that things will be relatively calm because the marginal votes that have to be cleaned up won't make a difference in the outcome. But if it turns out that it's close in the Electoral College, no matter what it is with respect to the popular vote, then I think the situation is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, The first thing I think one has to remember is there is a genuine revolution in mail ballots this time around, which is exemplified by Pennsylvania. Uh, It's old rule used to see that you had to say that you would be out of the district and could not vote on election day. Uh, Now the rule is all you have to do is to say you would rather vote in advance. Uh, Sometimes you do it by mail. The polls are often open in other jurisdictions. So what's happening is we're having a completely new system and we've never had a dry run of this. We've had novel systems take place in places like Iowa, more complicated than this one, which have resulted in complete chaos. And so generally speaking, uh, nobody does particularly well on a maiden voyage unless they've had some practice in tuning. And there's none that's been done. It's also the case that every state will present somewhat different rules uh, because they all have election codes which they're allowed to make uh, consistent with certain kinds of uh, constitutional constraints, and they're all different. Uh, so it's not at all clear that you're going to get a uniform outcome when the disputes come out. A Democrat could win one, a Republican could win the other, and so forth. Uh, so I'm actually quite apprehensive about this. Uh, the more of these votes that are counted on election day, and I would rather they be counted even before election day and the results be kept quiet, uh, so that when you get to midnight on uh, November 3rd, I guess it is, at least there'll be some degree of certainty as to what's happening. Uh, but uh, the litigation in uh, Bush v. Gore was hardly a cakewalk, and I could still remember at the time being on a show, and I was asked how it would go out, and the general consensus around the table was that there would be a kind of a comedy between the parties, and they would work this out in an amiable fashion, and I said, the one thing you have to understand, the moment you take a statute that looks innocent on its face, and you make a huge amount turn on it, the inventive quality of lawyers on both sides of the table will be so great that the time you're in 24 hours, you have no idea of how you got there and you have no idea of where you're going to go. Statutes look clear when they're not disputed, but the moment they start to do that, somebody's going to be clever enough to say, well, there's an override. Somebody's going to be clever enough to say there's an ambiguity. Somebody's going to be clever enough to say there's a constitutional constraint. Uh, both sides will do this. And what you will have is enormous pressure on the judiciary to make very snap, quick decisions on issues that will turn out to be numbingly difficult. 
Let's talk about what's happening thus far at the Supreme Court. It's been a little confusing up to this point for the casual court watcher because you've had these cases out of North Carolina and Pennsylvania where the court is allowing extra time for absentee ballots to be counted, but a case out of Wisconsin where they're not. So for people who aren't paying too close attention to this, Richard, why the different outcomes here? And also, what, if anything, does this tell us about how the court might handle any post-election litigation on these issues? Well, there are two elements here. There's, first of all, the question of what is the arguments to be made to put aside the literal application of the statute? And then, more relevant to your particular question, is who gets to decide that? And so if you look at most of these election statutes, what they do is they are very strong with respect to finality. A ballot must be in if coming by mail by 8 p.m. on such and such a day, no exceptions allowed. And this was designed to facilitate administration uh, because Late ballots would then give you all sorts of measuring and problems, security problems and so forth, chain of control problems. Uh, but on the other hand, it turns out that there are a number of arguments made that there are other provisions that actually influence this. And so in Pennsylvania, there is a free and fair election clause, and the state Supreme Court said, when we look at that, we do not believe, given COVID, that we can have a free and fair election if we have this. Uh, the Democrats asked for an extra seven days. The Secretary of State was willing to give three. And the state legislature, with the acquiescence of the Secretary of State, uh, decided on the three. So you cannot treat that as though it's a kind of a radical opinion when you go ahead and you support one of the state's chief administrative officers. But she, of course, was arguing that there was some kind of reason based upon the COVID confusion as to why this should take place. The difficulty with that argument is that the COVID confusion is not something which arose on October 30th or October 20th, something that arose in March. And everybody knew by the time we got to May that this thing was likely to happen, ditto over the summer. And so most states made through their election electoral commission some kind of adjustments for this. And so then the question is, if they've already made some adjustment, is there a good reason to say that they have to make more adjustments on this? Uh, is the problem not solved by adjustment? And should the courts have the last word on this? But then the question is, which court? If you go into state court, according to Justice Roberts, who is a swing vote on this, this is the state-on-state treatment of the particular issue. And in his particular view, there's a uh, constitutional provision which says that when state courts pass on state issues, their judgments are final and you ought not to intervene. And so he was quite happy when the federal court decided to do it to say that kind of deference doesn't apply. So I'm going to intervene in the one case, but I'm not going to intervene on the other. Uh, the other problem about this is that we have a constitution which can't make up its mind is who is in control of what. And what happens is the original constitution was a compact between the states in order to create a federal government, and we the people was an add-on feature at the end of it. And so when you have state governments playing a key role, what you do is you see a constant distribution of powers between the various parties, or what can the states do, what can the federal governments do, and, and so forth. And you have slightly different provisions between Article One dealing with the Congress, um, elections to the Congress, where they can override what the state does. But when you're dealing with it here, the provision is pretty categorical. It says Article 2, Section 1, Part 2, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, and they go on how. Legislatures may elect. 
there's no reference in this particular thing to constitutional overrides. But on the other hand, there was no Bill of Rights, and there certainly was no Reconstruction Amendment, including the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, so what happens is the way in which you do this is you could say since it's the federal constitution, which tells you that the state legislature has the power, this is not a question of state law anymore. It's a question of federal constitutional law, even if it's decided by a state court. And so the people who disagreed with Justice Roberts were saying, uh, we're going to get into this thing all the way down because everything implicates what it is that the Constitution requires. And this provision, that's it. There's nothing more about this, and there's no explicit integration with the Bill of Rights. And the guys on the other side say, oh, we, every other provision is subject to a Bill of Rights constraint or an equal protection constraint. Uh, there's no reason why this one should be exempt from that particular rule. Original intention in 1787 doesn't cut it because we have all this other stuff. And then, then on the other side, they say, uh, but in this particular case, finality is very, very strong. And you really have to give enormous deference even under the Equal Protection Clause because nobody is arguing this as a provision in which there's going to be systematic forms of racial injustice, ethnic injustice, sex discrimination, or whatever. And so the original amendment survived. Uh, as I told you earlier, it's easy to proliferate arguments on both sides, and I've just managed to do it very briefly. And I assure you, clever lawyers arguing litigation can think of even more variations on the common theme. Uh, so this thing came back today, and it turned out... Uh, uh, it was no change in the vote. And in addition, what happened is Judge Am Justice now, Amy uh, Coney Barrett, decided she was going to sit this one out. This is not, I believe, because she thinks that uh, a recently appointed judge by President Trump is hopelessly compromised on this issue. Uh, I think the simplest explanation is a kind of a complicated case, and uh, you better think before you start to rule. Uh, so she sat this one out, even though she might have made a difference in the vote. So I, I think, in effect, for the rest of these decisions, she's likely to come in. And I will say, for the record, I have no idea which way she will vote. Richard, there was an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh in the Wisconsin case that has caused alarm in progressive precincts. Kavanaugh writing that, I'll read you the quote, for important reasons, most states, including Wisconsin, require absentee ballots to be received by election day, not just mailed by election day. Those states want to avoid the chaos and suspicions of impropriety that can ensue if thousands of absentee ballots flow in after election day and potentially flip the results of an election, close quote. Justice Kagan, in her opinion, in the same case, took real exception to this, and she wrote, or read you hers, but there are no results to flip until all valid votes are counted, and nothing could be more suspicious or improper than refusing to tally votes once the clock strikes 12 on election night. To suggest otherwise, especially in these fractious times, is to disserve the electoral process, close quote. And this has been taken up by a lot of progressives in the media as an alarm that Justice Kavanaugh is laying the predicate to aggressively and inappropriately intervene in these cases. Does, does his opinion seem threatening or menacing to you? His opinion represents established wisdom on this particular question, which is reflected in all of these statutes. Uh, the question as to whether or not the vote has to be sent before or received by a particular date is one that is perfectly apparent to everybody, and everybody, for administrative reasons, wants to take it. Uh, so the opinion of Justice Kagan says, well, uh, we 
don't really think these ballots are invalid because we really ought to decide this case our way. Uh, but if, in fact, you follow the statute, then these do, votes do not count any more, for example, than if you have a proxy fight in a corporation and somebody sits in a ballot later than the time that they're allowed for. Those votes are not going to be counted either. Uh, so I don't think he's trying to lay the claim for regulation. What he's trying to do is to put up the argument about the chain of control. Now, the counter-argument is another way, and this is one that I feel I am opposed to universal franchise by mail ballot because I don't think anybody can control the chain by which stuff gets in. Uh, when you start putting things into the mails or even into a box, somebody can add ballots that don't belong there. Or somebody could take out ballots that are already in there. And if you're just adding or taking these things out, it's not as though you can flip the chads as you did in Florida in 2000 and say it was or was not cut. It's going to be extremely difficult to do this. There's also, I think, a serious problem that you're going to worry about somebody deciding to vote by mail and then turning around and deciding to vote by showing up uh, as well. So I've been opposed to this from the beginning on the grounds that the chain of custody issues are extremely important. There is, of course, a very important uh, dispute between Democrats and Republicans on this, which is what the frequency is of, uh, with respect to vote fraud in these cases. And the received wisdom is that very few ballots get the, uh, discharged for reasons of votes in certain kinds of elections, so therefore it's not a very big problem. Uh, the argument on the other side, led by John Fund, um, has gone exactly the other way, saying uh, the reason very few ballots get disqualified is that the fraud in many of these cases is so successful that there's nobody who has either the ability or the will to undetect it. And in this particular case, when you're dealing with mail ballots where the chain of custody is nothing close to what it is when people are actually casting a ballot inside a voting booth, um, it seems to me that the fraud risk is bigger than it would be under the other circumstances, which is why people have always put these temporal limits on it. Uh, so I think it's kind of a little bit of baiting on the other side to say about Justice Friday. Kavanaugh, he raises an issue which everybody had regarded as serious for years. Now, in this case, when he raises it, it turns out it's wrong. Uh, it's a serious, serious problem. Um, my hope is that there are very few ballots that come in after the date and that they will not really matter in the way in which this thing turns out. Because remember, we have very sharp timelines uh, because you have to form governments, you have to meet in the electoral college. There are a lot of things that take place on interim dates. And if you recall, we had to do incredibly speedy litigation so that by December 4th, uh, we had a resolution in Bush v. Gore. But in this particular case, it's not just going to be a close ballot count in one state. It's going to be ballot counts in many states. And given the fact that you may have as many as a million ballots in a large state, which may come in at or close or after the deadline, with or without a postmark and so forth, you can see multiple litigations proceeding on multiple fronts. And, and to me, this is extremely, a very frightening situation. Uh, it's frightening if Biden wins. It's even more frightening if Trump wins, because if Trump wins, you're going to have the other debate on top of this, which is we really don't like the Electoral College. It's the popular vote that ought to matter in some particular sense. And so the legitimacy in a Biden victory, I think, will be harder to attack uh, than the legitimacy in a Trump victory, because if Trump wins, I think it is a virtual certainty. He will win with a small majority of the electoral votes and a decisive lack of majority in the popular vote. Biden will carry the popular vote no matter what the outcome is, and that's going to raise all the other kinds of issues. So we're in for some very choppy waters. There's one other factor, of course, that could play into the legitimacy question with the Trump victory. And you, you mentioned it earlier, but I just want to do this in full as we close. So as you said, 
Amy Coney Barrett is a Supreme Court justice now. And as you said, she's not participated in any of these voting cases so far. But I, I want to get to the thing that you hinted at earlier. Some people have suggested, mostly on the left, that she is under a special obligation to recuse herself from these electoral cases. There were people who didn't even want her to go to the White House for her swearing in. Because the theory is coming as a last-minute appointee of President Trump in this contentious setting at the very end of an election cycle with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, the optics are simply so bad for a woman who could potentially hold the deciding vote in one of these cases that she just needs to stay away. What's your reaction to that argument? I certainly understand why people make it. uh, But on the other hand, I don't think, in fact, that you could rely on it. Uh, There was nothing about the process that was untoward. Indeed, I was actually one who was not real enthusiastic, to put it mildly, about other Republicans rushing this through. I think my own attitude actually charged to change a little bit in favor of the Republicans, uh, because when the Democrats started to threaten court packing coming in the opposite way, it would be impossible if you face that particular threat, uh, to put off home Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, have the Democrats control the presidency in the Senate, and then they could stack it by essentially having only two votes. If they put her on, now it's going to take four votes. Uh, I think the stacking issue or the packing issue of the court is down at this particular point because it turns out that popular sentiment, I think rightly, is about three to one against that. And Biden, I think, did a very sensible thing when he decided he's going to put this over to a commission, i.e bury it for at least a year when it will no longer be a serious or silent issue. And so, I mean, all of that stuff, but she was properly nominated. Other people have done this. They had their chance in the hearings to uh, basically do it. Everybody knew it was wired on both ways. Uh, uh, It was no surprise. Uh, I don't think that there would have been any difference if she had been nominated and appointed a year ago. She's a pretty independent person. I mean, uh, I think I've most people who know her, both on the left or the right, have a very high regard for intellectual integrity on these issues. And I just think that in absent any specific information of how she had tipped her hand in some in particular way, I don't think you can do it. She was, I think, quite right during the hearing to stay away from any particular question. That could be the subject of future litigation. I have no question that she will lean right in some way. That's why she was appointed. But at the same point, I have no reason to believe uh, that she will do it in any kind of an improper way. And in fact, I mean, suppose somebody were to go a little bit further and to say, you know, I mean, all those Obama appointees trying to get their majority, well, they ought to recuse themselves as well. And Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, my God, uh, they were contentious as well. They ought to recuse themselves, at which point we have nobody on the Supreme Court who can decide this particular case, and you won't even get a quorum. So I think, in effect, uh, she is the one who has to call this as a matter of law. Everybody agrees to that. I think it would be a disservice for her to try to pull away from this thing and then face God knows what. And remember, if we get a 4-4 tie on any of these issues, which Justice Roberts quite likely to flip in some of these cases, uh, that would also be a constitutional crisis and one perhaps of even greater order. So I think she ought to participate in these things the moment she feels that she's ready to. And, and I'm tired and a little bit sad to hear constant attacks on the good faith of all sorts of people who are nominated by Trump. It's a Trump contagion effect. 
well, he's a terrible human being, everybody says, and so she must be a terrible human being because she accepted a nomination on his watch. I think we need fewer allegations of bad faith, and we should spend our time worrying about the merits. And it's not an accident that virtually everybody who's attacking her this time around was also vigorously opposed to what the Supreme Court did in Bush v. Gore 20 years ago. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.